How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein. I'm here today with Eric Larson, who has written a bestseller, The Splendid and the Vile, which is about 1940 and the leadership provided by Winston Churchill to the British people shortly after he became prime minister that year. Uh, Eric, thank you very much for coming in and discussing this book. Thank you. So what prompted you to write a book about one year, essentially, of Winston Churchill's life? What was the precipitating factor? The, the, the genesis of this was that I wanted to get a sense of how, um, how people managed to endure the German air campaign against Britain that took place in 1940-41, which was the main German 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 air assault. There were subsequent raids, but this was the main air assault. And and I initially, actually, wanted to do uh, think about doing a typical family in, in, in Britain. And then I thought, well, what about the quintessential family, the Churchills and 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 Churchill's advisors and so forth. And then, as I got into the as I got into the research, I realized that uh, you know, as a as a writer of narrative nonfiction, this almost never happens. This sort of perfect, perfect narrative arc, but you know, it begins with with Churchill becoming prime minister in May 1940, and it ends on May 10th, 1941, which is essentially literally that first year, you know, day to day, and it ends on May 10th, 1941, because that's when the German air uh, the German air campaign came to an end. So, uh, how did you? turn out to be a nonfiction writer. You've written fiction as well, I guess, but um, why did you decide to be a nonfiction writer? Did you know that in college you wanted to write books like this? And, and uh, how did you decide to become a writer professionally? I, I'm a failed fiction writer. I, I have four, um, four unsold but complete novels somewhere in my, my files after various moves across the country. I, 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 for some reason, for whatever reason, I, I never felt confident enough to try to publish that stuff as my nonfiction career career advanced. And I always figured that by now I would be writing sort of really classy detective novels. But, you know, life doesn't always turn out the way you, you, you plan it. And, and I, I became a journalist. I worked for a time for the Wall Street Journal, for Time Magazine, and so forth. And over time, I began to realize that, that the longer the magazine piece that I did, I did a lot of stuff for the Atlantic Monthly also, the longer the piece, um, the more research went into it, the more I thought, you know, I might as well be writing a book. So I started just kind of evolving into that. And, and and it was actually my my agent who got me into thinking about writing history in in from the perspective of of, of, of story, if you will. My first two books were you know, probably unread by most people, but they were very contemporary journalistic nonfiction. Um, but it was my agent who sort of made me start thinking about this with my first book, Isaac Storm, about a giant hurricane that destroyed the city of Galveston. And once I got into that, once I started doing what is referred to as narrative nonfiction, I loved it. 
it's, it's for some reason it, it hit all the buttons that made me satisfied. So after you spent uh, all this time on Winston Churchill, did you come away admiring him more than you had before, or are you not as uh, big a fan of him as you were before? Usually when I, when I do a nonfiction book, I come away not liking the characters. Churchill, I came to really like because I was enthralled with how he, what he knew on an instinctive level, and maybe on a practice level, but I think on an instinctive level, about leadership, about how to motivate, how to motivate and how to embolden a population. Well, suppose you could have dinner with Winston Churchill. What would be the one or two questions that you would love to ask him? Well, <laughs> the glib answer, because this has been circulating in, in Churchillian circles for a long time, is did he ever have an affair? It's the Castle Ross affair. But what I'd really like to know, um, I, I'd like to know what he really thought about Roosevelt on a personal level. Um, have a conversation about that. But more than anything, I'd like to be a fly on the wall at one of his dinners at Checkers, the prime ministerial country estate, just to listen to the repartee, to listen to the humor, the jokes and so forth, and then maybe watch afterwards as, as Churchill did maybe did his bayonet drills in his light blue siren suit and red dragon robe with his manlicker rifle in the hall, of the great hall of, of checkers. I mean, I would just like, love to have sort of been there to absorb that whole thing. So you point out in your book, and maybe this is the key to leadership, uh, he was obsessed with taking two baths a day and <laughs> always had two baths a day. And then he loved to have, I guess, pink silk pajamas. Pink silk underwear. Under underwear. Let's underwear. So, so is that the secret to his leadership? Yeah, I, I got to say, I, it, it could well be that the, the, the baths were, uh, were, were one element in, in, in helping him level himself against the, I mean, can you imagine the intense pressure and, and angst of this whole period? And maybe a couple of baths a day helped in that. I, I have no doubt that the alcohol he drank during the day also also helped in that. But I don't think that's the secret necessarily to 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 his leadership. He was, he was an instinctive leader. He, he really understood how to, how to embolden the public. Well, when Churchill gives these speeches, are they um, written by a speechwriter or does he write of himself? He's, he's the speechwriter. Actually, he's the speech dictator, which speaks also to his, to his brilliance. His, his MO when he was doing a speech, he would have a private secretary present. He would also have his personal secretary there with her, her typewriter. And, and he would dictate his speeches um, as he walked around the room. Maybe it was the, the, the cabinet room in 10 Downing Street with a cigar in hand. Um, he would dictate these speeches. Then um, these would be typed for him in what he referred to as speech form, which would, if you were to look at it, you would say it looked like, like, like poetic verse, but it was actually his way of constructing a speech so that it was easy for him to deliver. Um, so, yeah, so he, he wrote it. So today we uh, worship uh, Churchill a bit because he was given honorary citizenship. He helped Britain win the war with our help, uh, the United States. But he's idolized a lot. But in the age of 64, before he became prime minister at 65, he wasn't such a big hero. Why was he not uh, elevated in his 40s or 50s to this top job if he was so talented? Well, he's a very complicated character. Now, you know, Churchill, in his own mind, should have been prime minister probably from the age of 25. But, you know, Churchill had a very checkered career. World War I, he was uh, first Lord of the Admiralty. 
um, he was the architect behind the fiasco we all know as as uh, as uh, you know the Australian landing um, uh, at uh, in the Ottoman Empire. Um, he got thrown out of the Admiralty. He he wound up in I guess what he would refer to as the wilderness um, for a long time. He was deemed to be sort of damaged goods, but the public loved him. The public came to love him prior to World War II because he was really trying to sound the alarm about Nazi Germany. He was uh, he was a very popular figure with the public. And one thing led to another. There was a rebellion in the House of Commons, and suddenly he finds himself prime minister, achieving his life goal. Of course, he achieves his life goal on the day that Hitler invades the Low Countries. So to put it in context, he is uh, a member of the cabinet uh, under Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain is the prime minister who famously negotiated a deal that he thought would bring peace for all time with Hitler. Yes. It didn't work out that way. When uh, Poland is invaded by uh, Hitler on September 1, 1930, was it 1939? So that's right. when they began to realize that maybe this, the strategy of Chamberlain wasn't going to work. Right. So who decided that Winston Churchill was the right person? There was a rebellion in the House of Commons in May, uh, early May of 1940. The belief was, the feeling was that Neville Chamberlain um, was simply not up to the task of negotiating a war. Um, uh, you can get a sense of how people felt about Chamberlain by his two of, two of his nicknames. One was the coroner and one was the old umbrella. And the feeling was that, that, that someone with more dynamism, more energy, um, would be better positioned for, for, this, for this role. Churchill was not beloved by, um, by Whitehall, by the seat of British government. He was, however, at this point, beloved by the public. Um, and so it came down to, in the end, a choice between him and, and you know, the foreign, foreign, uh, foreign secretary. Foreign secretary did not want the job. Churchill, um, of course, did want the job. The king ultimately appointed Churchill. Afterwards, uh, honestly, within the little, uh, probably for the next 48 to 72 hours, there was a good deal of, 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 of second-day remorse about the choice of Churchill. But that's, that's how he became prime minister. Now, the king of England at the time, he uh, theoretically, formally says, I want you to lead my government. Did the king yeah. really want Churchill or he had another favorite? The king himself had grave misgivings. He did not feel that Churchill was the man for the job. Um, interestingly, and it's kind of a charming element, as things advance, he really came to think that Churchill was the man for the job. And finally, at one point, he writes in his, in his, in his diary, he says, uh, you know, basically, I can't imagine a, be a better prime minister. But early on, he, he, he is deeply skeptical about Churchill, as were many others. One of my favorite characters in the book is John Colville, one of Churchill's cadre of private secretaries. These were these very hardworking, talented young men who actually, I think of more as, a, as, as, as a, a apprentice uh, prime ministers. Um, John Colville was deeply skeptical. He had worked for Ch for, for Chamberlain, and now he's going to work for for Churchill. And he he was really concerned about what was what was going to happen. Within a week, he had become a convert. So Churchill takes over as prime minister, and shortly thereafter, Dunkirk occurs. Yes, it wasn't his fault because he was really just uh, new to the prime ministership. But what happened at Dunkirk, and why was that such a disaster for the British army? 
Well, you know, what, what, what happened was that, um, uh, you know, Hitler's surge across Europe was so powerful, so potent, so unexpected in many ways. I mean, he, he invaded the Low Countries, then turned his attentions to, to, to France, managed to skirt the Maginot Line um, and route the British Expeditionary Force, drive them to the coast at Dunkirk. Um, and, and what threatened then actually was, was truly the annihilation of, of, of the British Army. Um, happily, happily, at that point, uh, Hitler made a strategic error. His armored columns were converging on, on Dunkirk and had the potential to wipe out the, the British Army. And for various reasons, which are still debate, debated today, he made the decision to pause, um, uh, which gave the, the, uh, the British Expeditionary Force breathing room and also gave time to orchestrate the tremendous evacuation that we all know today. So let's deal with the history events as they unfolded after Dunkirk. Um, somebody might come in and say, wait a second, the British have fled Dunkirk. They're in retreat. Hitler has the low countries. He's got France. He's got Italy on his side. He has a non-aggression uh, pact with Russia. So why not just take all your forces, if you're Hitler, and invade England? Why did Hitler want to do that? Hitler had, had it is said that he had a deep suspicion of the water. But basically, um, I, I think Hitler understood, as Churchill did, that, that an amphibious invasion of, of England, and it would, it would have to be that, an amphibious invasion of England would have been a really dangerous, really taxing thing. Now, the Germans were not shy about accumulating vast losses of, of, of men and equipment. That was not the thing that stopped Hitler at all. But this would have been a, a tremendous, tremendous challenge for Hitler to have achieved because Germany did not have the Navy. They, they had, relative to Britain, not a terribly strong Navy. They would have had to accumulate the ships that were necessary to do this invasion. And that's why, that's why Hitler, in a sense, tried to take the shortcut route, that is to bring Churchill to the negotiating table, by using the Luftwaffe. And certainly Hermann Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe, Took every effort he could to persuade Hitler to persuade Hitler that that, that you know this is this is the best thing since sliced bread. We can do this thing, and so Hitler gave gave him a chance to do it, um, and that was a way of sort of sidestepping invasion. They did Hitler did commission did authorize a plan to invade England, Operation Sea Lion. There's always been a question about just how serious he was about about engaging that plan. So uh, the plan is soften up the British, bomb them, and eventually Churchill or his successor will say, we surrender. That was the, the essence of the plan. Is that right? That, that, that was the hope. Uh, Churchill, uh, Hitler rather, from uh, early on in, in, in Churchill's premiership, um, wanted to, to, to negotiate a peace, wanted to bring Churchill to the peace table. It was not for any humane reason, not for any moral reason, you know, not, not that at all. He had other, other designs. He did not want to have this dangerous foe um, as, as sort of a rear, rear front. Um, so so, so he, I, he, he really wanted Churchill to come to the table, but I don't think Churchill ever actually really seriously entertained the idea of, of a peace deal. And, and what, what really became the dominant um, manifestation of Churchill's premiership is his defiance, utter defiance. And, and Hitler and his, his staff, his senior staff, they couldn't believe it. They, had, they, they could not understand why Churchill would not come to the table. It made no sense. 
So uh, in Churchill's um, most famous speech, perhaps, he said during the war, we'll fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them on the lands, and so forth and so on. And it is said that Churchill, and in your book, you point out that Churchill actually carried a gun with him from time to time. And people thought that he was prepared to kill himself rather than be captured. Is that true? Well, I, I think... <laughs> I think I think Churchill's main intent in carrying a weapon was to take as many Germans with him as possible before he himself got got shot or captured. Would he have committed suicide? I, I, I don't know. The rumor was that he actually had a cyanide capsule on the top of a ballpoint pen. But he did have a Sten gun in the trunk of his car. He periodically carried a revolver, and he also periodically left the revolver lying around 10 Downing Street, checkers, and so forth, according to his bodyguard. Uh, but yeah, he was he was uh, he was very serious about. Uh, about not being taken prisoner. So the Luftwaffe, uh, under Goering's leadership, basically starts sending uh, lots of uh, German planes, bombers and fighter planes over uh, England. Did they have a secret weapon that enabled them to fly at night or other kinds of things in weather that the, the British didn't really have as well to be able to counter? Yeah, so one of the sub-themes that, that, that I came across um, is that the Germans in this time had in fact developed um, a secret means of navigation for for their for their bombers for 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 bombers equipped with a certain apparatus, and this is very important because it would allow them to pinpoint targets even as even an indi individual factory, um, regardless of weather, regardless of whether it was day or night, which was something that at that time was nobody else nobody else could achieve you know it was believed that the germans could really only do their bombing runs during the day or on nights clear nights with a full moon but this you know and i don't want to trivialize it by calling it a game changer but it was it what it was a game changer and it was discovered actually by a young guy in in the uh, in the in the air ministry you point out in your book that the british had their own secret as well they had broken the german code and uh, was that actually that helpful to the, to the British in knowing what the Germans were going to do? It was tremendously helpful to them, not so much in terms of immediate response um, to, to, to things that they learned in the codes, but, but boy, in terms of knowing about dispositions of, 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 of air bases and, and, and broad plans and so forth, it was absolutely, absolutely invaluable. But also, also the the British had 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 established their their famous um, now famous radar network along the uh, the chain home stations along the coastline of Britain <clears throat> of England, uh, the British Isles, and um, this proved to be really a tremendously potent thing. And the Germans, weirdly enough, I mean, the Germans understood radar. They had they had their own version, but they never expected to have to use it, so they didn't really develop it. Um, and they didn't really take British radar at, seriously at, at first. And even after even after Goering ordered raids on, the, on some of the uh, some of the British uh, air, um, radar towers, and the, the towers were it's not that they were indestructible, but they could be put up again right away. So it was almost like why waste why waste the effort on blowing these things up? And finally, Goering just said, "Ah, forget it. We'll just we'll just ignore those," which was a fatal mistake because the radar was very very effective. Now, the Luftwaffe's effort to bomb uh, Britain into submission is known, uh, I guess, as the Battle of Britain. And as the Battle of Britain, which went on for many, many months, I guess, 
Uh, how many um, Brit British citizens were actually killed? Do you know? I believe in London alone, it was something like 44,000 more throughout the UK, I mean, throughout the, the, throughout the British Isles. But one, one thing I want to make clear about the campaign was that we tend to think of the, the lump everything together in sort of one thing, the Battle of Britain or the, or the Blitz or whatever. But this campaign began and, and, and evolved almost like, a, almost like a, a classic suspense novel. The Luftwaffe began feeling out British defenses. This is after the fall of France um, and, and you know, before any talk of invasion and so forth. They began feeling out um, uh, British defenses with, with odd raids that really mystified the RAF. They didn't seem to have much purpose. And these, these began to intensify. And then they became really quite focused on RAF airfields and so forth. All the while, though, Hitler... Uh, had a had an explicit prohibition on bombing central London because again he wanted to try to bring Churchill to the table. In the end, when he realized that was impossible, that's when what we know as the Blitz actually began. And that first deliberate bombing of London was on September seventh, nineteen forty. And what followed then um, that that was the first of fifty seven consecutive nights of intense nightly bombing, followed then by six more months of bombing raids at intervals. What, were the Germans trying to kill people or damage buildings? Or, or well, get, you know, <laughs> or the, get Churchill. Did they want to kill Churchill? I think they would love to have, have killed Churchill. Churchill, Churchill certainly became um, he became convinced that in fact the Luftwaffe, in fact Hitler, Goering, they were actually out to kill him. That had been their M.O. in other nations. They would, would go after the leadership. Um, he was pretty convinced that they were out to get him, and, and hence some of his, some of his bravado with telling his family that he was going to take as many with them as he, as he possibly could. So yeah, I, it seemed like for, for a time that that was the intent. Well, when the bombing is occurring, is, uh, is Churchill hiding in an underground bunker, or is he <laughs> up there, standing out there watching the bombs come in? Was he uh, willing to do that? So Churchill, during an air raid, Churchill, Churchill was more likely than not to go to the nearest rooftop and watch the raid. I mean, he was he he, he would he would also um, he would also drive or be driven rather to like to the nearest anti-aircraft gun emplacement. He loved that kind of action. One of my favorite moments uh, in, in learning about Churchill was that was one day he was having a dinner party. Um, a, a big raid begins in London. A big raid began, and he took his guests and his staff up on the roof to watch this this very intense raid. And while he's on the roof, he quotes Tennyson. He quotes a poem called Locksley Hall, which, uh, to, in, in in some people's eyes, forecasts the advent of aerial warfare. So uh, while all the uh, Luftwaffe bombings are occurring, is Britain sitting there saying we don't attack the Germans, or are they? Dropping bombs on the Germans, and how effective was that effort? Two, two, two elements of uh, there were two elements of, 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 of Churchill's thinking about uh, about use of the RAF. Um, on the one hand, he was very wise early on to recognize that if Hitler was going to invade the British Isles, he would first have to achieve air superiority, and the only way he could do that is um, through the deployment. Of, of, of his fighters and, 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 and bombers, in particular his fighters, because if he could deny Hitler air superiority, there's no way that, that he could invade. So that was the fighter side of the story. That's the classic, you know, hurricanes and spitfires and dogfights over, over the British Isles. But Churchill also was, he was 
really chafing. He really wanted to go on the offensive against Germany. And, and to him, the best, most direct way to do that was through RAF Bomber Command, by using RAF bombers um, to blow up targets in Germany, um, and as far into Germany as possible, Berlin, if, if, if they could uh, achieve it. Um, these British raids against German targets were not super effective in this period. Of course, they became incredibly effective later on. Um, but he, the most important for him was the symbolic act of having British bombers reach the mainland, reach the, 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 the inner sanctum of Germany, and, and, and in, in one case, you know, drop incendiary bombs in, 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 in Joseph, Joseph Goebbels' garden. So uh, while all this is going on, uh, Churchill's frantically trying to get FDR to come into the war on the side of the British. Uh, why was that effort so difficult, and why did FDR resist it until uh, Pearl Harbor? It was difficult for Roosevelt because he was running for an unprecedented third term as, uh, as president of the United States. And, and you know, he, he, he knew what he was up against. In America, there was a profoundly powerful isolationist trend. People did not want to get involved in this war at all. So he had to walk a very fine line. He himself believed that eventually, uh, eventually America would have to get into the war. But he, he, it was very hard for him to simply, of course, he couldn't just say, okay, we're going to do this. So, so he had to walk a very fine line. And Churchill, first of all, Churchill didn't quite get why Roosevelt couldn't just come into the war. I mean, there's a classic sort of British perspective on American politics. But, but uh, Churchill also began this very deft campaign from the very beginning to try to lure um, Roosevelt, to try to reel Roosevelt into the war. It was really a very artful courtship. Now, the British people um, didn't say, Churchill, we're being bombed and we want you to be thrown out of office. They kind of rallied around him. Is that right? Well, they rallied around him because, because you know, I think that cuts to, to, to his leadership. Um, uh, you know, everybody understood that this was an existential threat. Um, people understood the ground truth. You know, you can't tell them happy things and say, "Oh, listen, don't worry. This is this the Luftwaffe is just going to go away." Um, he understood that that the people understood the the, the the situation. In his in as a leader, what I think he was particularly adept at was emboldening the British public, helping them to stand up, helping them to find, as he put it. He helped them to find their own courage. He didn't give them courage. He helped them to find their own courage. And that was one of the miracles, I think, of his, of his leadership. So your book uh, is called The Splendid and the Vile. Where does that title come from? What is that referring to? So the, the title comes from a diary entry um, in, a, in a fabulous diary kept by John Colville, one of, uh, again, one of Churchill's uh, cadre of private secretaries. He's, he's, he's very, very hardworking guys. He kept this diary against all national security prohibitions. Um, he should not have been keeping this thing at all, but thank God he did. It is probably the single most detailed window on life in 10 Downing Street during this period. Uh, and in fact, it's been published as a book called The Fringes of, of, of Power. And one of the one of the diary entries one day during a, a, another very intense raid, uh, John Colville was watching the raid unfold from a bedroom window. 
And he was struck, um, this may some paradox, but he was struck by the beauty of the night, this sable black sky, searchlights, anti-aircraft shells exploding. And it, it moved him. Uh, he has a very, very poignant passage. And, and, and it ends with him saying it was a juxtaposition of, of, of natural splendor and human vileness. And as soon as I read that, I knew that this was going to be my title. So would you say that when somebody reads this book, they're going to learn a lot about British history or going to learn more about leadership? And what do you think the book really is about? Is it about leadership or British history during that one year period of time or both? I think, well, I think what it's really about is about getting through, about life, about life under pressure, life under a, uh, you know, under, under a severe threat. And secondarily, it's, a, it's about leadership as a, as a subcomponent of, of, of that. But it's really, to me, it's about, it's about life. It's about how you deal with this kind of situation. Well, I really enjoyed it. I read it in about two sittings because I just couldn't put it down. So, Eric, congratulations. What's your next book going to be on? <laughs> I wish I knew. I actually have like like eight, eight, eight piles of documents on my floor, each representing a, an idea. Three of them, I think, may rise to the, to the point of having to choose. One may end up as the king. All right. Well, congratulations. I look forward to reading your next book. Thank, thank you, you, Eric. Thank you. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.